listening to Life Church Podcast with Pastor David Sinclair. For our TMT this morning, I want to talk about a woman named Jane Adams. Anybody here heard the name Jane Adams anywhere? I hope so. We have a Jane Adams in our neighborhood, Jane Adams Elementary. Jane Adams lived from 1860 to 1935, and she was an amazing Christian woman. Uh, sometimes I guess lost in the histories, but she was very much a Christian. She was baptized in a Presbyterian church. She attended seminary. But after all this Christian training, she kind of felt lost in life. Have you ever felt lost in life? Well, Jane Adams did too. She was trying to figure out what God was calling her to. And she ended up having an incredible ministry when she saw something. What she saw was the poor, the urban poor, the poor in the cities. She saw them in America, in all these different cities. She saw them, and her heart broke for them. She had seen uh, phenomena in her life where things were changing. It was a very turbulent time in America in the late 1800s. Farmers were losing their farms. They were moving into the cities. Lots of immigrant groups coming into America. And the cities were growing. They were burgeoning. But the churches were not able to keep up with this growth. And in fact, uh, America, uh, various social programs, not able to keep up with the needs of the poor. Well, Adam saw that need, and she was able to meet them because she also saw um, amazing new possibilities. She had a kind of Christian imagination. Her best-known accomplishment was founding the whole house in Chicago. Get this, it was a home where poor families were supposed to live together with educated women. And the educated women would help these families, immigrants or farmers who were getting resettled, uh, or, or various other poor people, would get them resettled into city life. They served them by teaching them basic skills, language, arts. The whole house also pioneered programs that are common today, but virtually unheard of back then. Things like kindergarten, English classes. Uh, they were working on um, a community center, even job placement services. Meanwhile, Adams championed legislation that would protect children, eliminate prostitution, and reduce warfare. And in all of this, she was explicit that she was doing that one of the pillars of her philosophy was what she called Christian humanitarianism. She was very inspired by early Christianity, and she saw this as a peace-loving way to attend to the needs of the poor. And she says, this is what America needs to rise up to, to take care of its poor with this sense of Christian humanitarianism. She said that the spirit of Christ needs to be expressed in terms of social service and action. And she did so much good with this. There, there's a limitation when you come across people like Jane Addams. Uh, when I look at it in retrospect, you realize that sometimes the emphasis on social action in the name of Christ sometimes um, tended to eclipse the person of Christ and the doctrines of Christ. Nevertheless, Jane Addams was somebody who saw the poor and she acted. And in fact, in 1931, she won the Nobel Peace Prize, the first woman to do so. And for all of her important work among new Americans, she has a school named after her, among other things. So we're thankful for this testimony of this sister in Christ, Jane Addams. Our scripture today comes from 
the fourth chapter of Luke, 14 through 21. A very interesting scripture. And the last time that I talked, I said that reading scripture is like listening into a conversation that someone else is having. Now, this goes and takes us a step farther because when we read this scripture and when Jesus speaks, we are like we are listening in to him speaking to us. It's kind of interesting that this text first introduces us to the situation. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report went out about him through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And the next part is when he actually uh, is going to speak. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and was his cousin, excuse me, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Blessed be the words of the scripture. Amen. On March 18, 1995, there was a very important public announcement made. For sports fans all over the world, the great Michael Jeffrey Jordan was coming out of a 17-month retirement. Of course, he had walked away from the game of basketball in the wake of his father's murder, but now he was ready to play again. When Michael was thinking through how he would make this big announcement, he didn't choose a lengthy press conference. He didn't offer a detailed statement. He chose to say what he needed to say in two simple words. I'm back. 
That was it. And those words said it all. Everybody knew what he meant when he said it. And here in our passage today, we have Jesus making the public announcement about his ministry in a similar fashion. He certainly doesn't waste any words here. Pulls off what could be the shortest sermon ever. It was just one sentence. One sentence to say what he needed to say. To say who he was and what he had come to do. This passage is like Jesus' calling card. It's like his mission statement. And of course, this passage is included in the lectionary text in the season of Epiphany because Epiphany is all about the unveiling of Jesus as the rescuer. Right? It's about these aha moments where people start to have their eyes open to see him for who he truly is. And so we get to have one of those aha moments today. We get to take a close look at what Jesus says about himself in this big time announcement. First, though, let's just set up the scene a little bit. Um, as Raymond read, Jesus returns to Galilee, which was this rural region that Jesus was from. He returns in the power of the Holy Spirit, and apparently there's been a buzz about him. He's been doing some pretty cool stuff, and going around from synagogue to synagogue, teaching in the synagogues. And when you think of a synagogue, just think of it like a local church. The center of Jewish worship was, of course, the temple in Jerusalem, but the Jews had been dispersed and scattered all over the place. And so what they did was they set up local synagogues where they could worship together and, and read and learn together and pray together. They would go to the temple for major feasts in Jerusalem, but they would stay in their local synagogues week to week. And, and that's kind of where Christianity even gets its weekly practice of gathering to worship. And this was Jesus' custom, too. So the big day comes when he's actually going to go back to his hometown synagogue and he's going to be preaching, right? And maybe some of you know what this is like to go back to your hometown, especially if you're from a small town, right? There's something really cool about being from a small town because everybody knows, well, this is kind of cool and kind of tough, but everybody knows what you've been up to, right? Especially if you become a person of any significance, like they already know before you get back what you've been up to. And that's the case with Jesus. Jesus has become kind of a big deal. He's popular in that region. Uh, maybe he's been doing miracles and stuff. Luke doesn't tell us about any miracles before this time. But he's coming back and everybody's excited to hear Joseph's boy preach. And it's interesting that Jesus decides to make his big announcement here in Nazareth, this rural town with blue-collar people. He doesn't choose to do it in the temple. He doesn't choose to do it among the really theologically educated. He doesn't choose to do it uh, in, a, in a huge, big public way with lots of people. But in his little, small, rural town, these blue-collar, simple people, the place where he's from, that's where Jesus chooses to make his announcement. And to make his announcement, he uses scripture. There's a lot we could say about this. We just don't have tons of time here. But note the text says this was Jesus' custom to be in the synagogue every week. Jesus was a weekly faithful worshiper. He was with God's people, worshiping God every week, reading and studying the scriptures. And obviously he was really familiar with the scriptures because back then they didn't have an app. You know, Jesus didn't even have a phone, a smartphone. Can you imagine how did Jesus live without a smartphone? But he didn't have an app where he could just look up the Isaiah text. Um, he didn't have a Google search where he could do. And he didn't even have chapters and verses, right? That was, that was put into the scriptures later to help people to navigate their way through the scriptures. So Jesus was so familiar, he could unroll the scroll of Isaiah and find Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58 and read what he wanted to read. So he does that. And then he sits down for the sermon part of the message. And that's where he gives kind of his mic drop statement, right? I mean, he basically says... This is about me. I'm here. 
I'm the person that you've been waiting for. And you have to realize, like, for 400 years, Israel hadn't heard a word from a prophet. Like, they wondered, has God abandoned us altogether? What's going on? And then Jesus shows up and says, today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's all about me. I'm the Messiah. I'm the guy you've been waiting for. I mean, all the eyes were fixed on him. You can imagine how quiet it got. Imagine if somebody got up here in the pulpit, read a scripture and said, this is about me. Wow. That'd be something else, something you'd never heard. It's quite a statement, isn't it? Now, not only is Jesus saying that he's the promised Messiah here, but the key to understanding this passage and what Jesus says here really goes back to Isaiah 61, which he quotes, which is all about the year of Jubilee, which I wish I had more time to talk about Jubilee, because you might ask, well, what's Jubilee? Well, it's the coolest thing you can ever imagine. It's something that God put in place for the people of Israel, and it was an every 50-year kind of deal. It was like a Sabbath of Sabbath, 7 times 7, 49. The 50th year was the year of Jubilee, and what it was was a giant reset for God's people, right? So um, it was about a, a time when all the debts would be forgiven. How many of you have student loan debt? You would love a year of Jubilee, right? Um, you, you, would, you would instantly, all your debt is gone. The slaves would be set free. And the land that you might have had to sell off in an unfortunate time would be returned to the family. So it was a giant fresh start, a time of great freedom and joy and rejoicing for all the people. You might ask, like, what kind of a God puts in place a thing like a year of Jubilee? Why would he do that? Well, it's a God that was saying, look, everything ultimately belongs to me. I'm the king of this people. And when I'm the king, nobody's going to be in bondage. That's the big point of the year of Jubilee. Nobody's going to stay in bondage as long as I'm king. I love how Micah Cobb puts this. He says, about this passage, he says, and Jesus is proclaiming that with his presence, with the start of his ministry, the plan of God has been put into motion to release the whole world from bondage. And it's all gloriously centered on Jesus from his proclaiming the good news here to his entire earthly ministry, to his death and resurrection when death and sin were defeated, to the ministry of his, the church, his body. All of this is God enacting this eternal jubilee. Oh, man, I love that. In Jesus, God is getting the ball rolling with his eternal jubilee, the time when all the debts are forgiven, the time when all the slaves are set free. Everyone returns to their homeland with God as king. Now, in case you missed it, what Cobb says there, there's a big announcement for us as the church as well. Like, this is Jesus' big announcement, there's, but there's a big announcement in, us, in there for us as well because Jesus got the ball rolling with this eternal jubilee, but the church very much is to take the baton from him and to carry out his ministry in the world now. So we're the continuation. We're the extension of that. In a very real sense, our work is going to mirror Jesus' work and mission in the world. So everything Jesus is saying here about this is why I came, this is my mission, that's now our work and our mission. So we best pay attention and look at the specifics of what he says here. So here, let's start. A couple things Jesus says. First of all, it's a, Jesus says he's empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is crucial for us. Luke is wanting to see this as a big theme in his gospel. So he's emphasizing, highlighting it here at the very beginning. When Jesus comes into Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 18, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me. 
That's a big idea. To be the Messiah literally meant to be the one anointed with the Holy Spirit to do the task that God had called him to do, right? That's what the Messiah meant. And Jesus is saying, I'm that person. But we can't skip over that. Like, look, the Son of God says when he's on earth, I am powered by the Holy Spirit. I, I find that very fascinating, right? If Jesus needed the power of the Holy Spirit to do and carry out his ministry, how much more do you think we need the power of the Holy Spirit to carry out our ministry, to extend his work to the world? I love what Corey Tin Boom says about this. She was a Dutch Christian who lived uh, during the time of the Holocaust, survived it, went on to do lots of excellent ministry. She says this, trying to do the Lord's work in your own strength is the most confusing, exhausting, and tedious work of all. But when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, the ministry of Jesus just flows right out of you. Now, man, isn't that true? Isn't that what we want for Life Church? Like when we're flowing in the Holy Spirit, when, when the Holy Spirit is active in us, the ministry of Jesus just flows right out of us. And I've had times where I'm like, oh man, this is such a drag, trying to do the work of the Lord in my own strength. But in the work of the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit's empowering us, it just flows right out of us. I think we got to experience some of that this morning in worship, just really sweet time. But that's what we want at Life Church. Um, one of my pastor friends whose former life was a mechanic, he calls the Holy Spirit our spiritual voltage. And he used to work on cars for a living. But, you know, you can have a great car that has a massive engine, tons of horsepower. Uh, everything can be just right in the car. It can be completely mechanically sound. But if it doesn't have a battery, it's not leaving the garage. It has no voltage, no juice. It's not going anywhere. The same thing is true for the church. We can have the best, uh, most gifted personnel. We can have great programs. We can have all kinds of wonderful things. We don't have the Holy Spirit. We are dead in the water. So Jesus did his ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit, and so must we. But Jesus goes on to say four things that the Spirit has anointed him to do. And let's look at those things together. They're big, massive things. I'm going to try to do them justice in just a few minutes today. First of all, he says, I came to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, what does Jesus mean that his mission was to proclaim good news to the poor? We got to see this with with, uh, TMT on Jane Addams a little bit today, how Christians have taken this. But why does he single them out? You know, there's lots of questions around this. After all, we see at the beginning of Luke's gospel that the angels come and say, I bring you good news that's for all the people. Not just the poor, but for all the people. And certainly we do believe the gospel's good news for all people. And some theologians will say, well, Jesus is just talking spiritually here. He's not really talking about the physical poor. But I don't think that makes sense with Luke's gospel or with this idea of Jesus being the eternal Jubilee because the Jubilee, let's face it, it was way better news for the poor than the rich, right? Way better news for the poor and the rich. They're going to have things restored. They're going to go back. Their reset's going to take them at least back to even. Whereas the rich kind of only stand to lose in that game. So what's Jesus saying by this? Well, I think there's a couple meanings, both a physical and a spiritual meaning. Let's look at them both. First of all, the gospel being good news to the poor is because they have the exact same access to it as the rich do. I think that's one of the big things here. Um, obviously in that time it was even more accentuated, but today it's still true that the poor simply don't have the same access to things as the rich do. They don't have the same education access, business opportunities. They don't have the same access to basic needs like food and water and clothing and shelter. 
They don't have the same voice or pull in society. Everything is stratified. Nothing is equal. And Jesus comes and says, that's not the way it is in my kingdom. My kingdom is different. Everyone has equal access to all of my riches. It's a pretty phenomenal thing, right? Pretty mind-blowing thing. God is no respecter of persons and certainly not based on the amount of money that they make or amount of possessions that they have. That's why Christians are told never ever to favor the rich over the poor. Jesus' brother James tells us this in his letter. So be wary of doing this. In Christianity, the rich and the poor come together and they sit together as equals, as perfect equals. There's no stratification in the kingdom of God. There's no class system in the kingdom of God. When John the Baptist was wondering, sitting in prison, wondering, is Jesus the Messiah? He sent his, his disciples to Jesus to ask him that question, like, are you the Messiah or should we wait for another? Jesus tells him, hey, look, the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and what? The poor have good news preached to them. And John says, all right, now I know. Now I know. It's a dead giveaway. That's one of the hallmarks of Jesus' ministry, that the gospel is exceptionally good news to the poor. And from that day on, Christianity has always been good news to the poor. It lifts them up. It gives them equal dignity. And it's no secret that the early church was flooded with slaves and poor people. Right? Because why not? Why wouldn't it be that way? Wouldn't you, if you, were, um, if you always had gotten used to people looking down on you, wouldn't you love a community where you came in and you were equal to the person that made a hundred times the money that you did? You had equal voice, equal say, equal importance. Wouldn't you love to come into a community where your king says, you have absolute equal access to all my riches as anyone else does? The gospel was good news to the poor, and we at Life Church take this really, really seriously. We understand that living in America in this day and age, compared to the rest of the world, most of us in here are rich. It's just the way it is. Materially speaking, most of us are rich, and there's great responsibility with that, that we're taking that seriously too. But we do have poor in life church and we simply reject the idea that anyone ever in this church will ever be treated any differently based on your status based on the amount of money you make or the kind of clothes you wear the kind of car you drive it just will not happen it has no place in the kingdom of god that stuff doesn't matter in god's kingdom we all come to the cross with empty arms and so that's the first thing. The gospel is good news to the poor because they have equal access. Secondly, I believe the gospel is good news to the poor because they have little to lose and everything to gain. And this is why they often received it with much more joy than the rich. Um, you could even say that the poor have an advantage in receiving the gospel, whereas the rich kind of have an impediment to receiving the gospel. We see this many times in the four gospels that you know, when, when the poor get the gospel preached to them, it's like, wow, that's amazing, that's good news. But when the rich hear it, it's challenging news. And that makes sense when we think about what the gospel says, right? It says, you were so broke, you were so destitute, you were so sinful that God literally had to become a human, live, die, rise again from the dead to forgive you of your sins, give you salvation as a free gift, and in return, he simply, off, he simply asked that you give him your life. The poor person says, you're going to give me all your riches, God, and all I got to do is give you my life in exchange? You got it. It's a done deal. But the rich person says, ah, my life? I don't know. I don't know, right? Like, if it isn't broke, don't fix it. And life is going pretty well for the rich person. So, so like, I, there's a lot to lose in that. I stand to lose some things, and, and maybe they can come to see that 
giving up their perceived riches is too great a cost to gain all the riches that they can have in Christ. So the physically poor are actually at an advantage when it comes to receiving the good news. Remember Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler, right? He, he says, look, this is the only thing you lack. Give everything you have to the poor and come follow me. And the guy goes away sad. He just can't do it. The wealth has gripped his heart in such a way he just can't release it. Jesus says, look, it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And we have to take that really seriously. That the gospel, it's, it's often riches, physical riches are often a huge impediment to receiving the good news. That's why the gospel is good news to the poor. But finally, the gospel is good news to all of us because all of us are spiritually poor, right? Um, when it comes to us spiritually, there's no upper or even middle class. We are all broke, destitute, destitute poverty-stricken, and penniless apart from Jesus. We just have no hope, right? And we see this in the Gospels, too, that sometimes somebody who is materially rich, think of Zacchaeus in, in Luke 19, materially rich, had all the money in the world, but he got it. When Jesus came to his house, he understood how spiritually broken he was, and he received the gospel as good news. Likewise, we could see some people who were materially poor that didn't get their spiritual poverty. So just being materially poor doesn't necessarily make you more godly or necessarily make you automatically open to receiving the gospel as good news. But what it does is it puts you in a humble posture. And so Jesus says that can often be an advantage. But either way, the scenario is the gospel is good news to the poor. Jesus proclaimed it, and now the church has the task of taking the good news to those who are both physically and spiritually poor around the world. You know, oftentimes this means doing what Jane Addams did, taking the good news with physical aid. Because let's face it, if you go to people who are literally starving to death or dying of malaria or waterborne illness or whatever it is, you can say Jesus loves you and he's given himself for you, which is still good news, but Jesus would prefer we say that with, and here's some clean water, and here's some food, and here's some shelter, and here we're going to try to help get your kids an education. Jesus always tried to meet the physical needs along with the spiritual needs, if you notice. He cared about the body and the spirit as well. And so we're doing that through organizations like Adam's Thermal uh, Foundation in Ethiopia. We're doing that through Reconcile World. We're doing that um, through places like Kinder Paradise, a home for children in Ghana. But also meeting needs locally through organizations like Shift Garages, fixing people's cars in the name of Jesus. Um, through organizations like The Gathering Well, um, coming around uh, people through community outreach, which helps uh, with a, a wide variety of people's needs right here in this community. And then we have our workshop today, which is all about educating our children on, on the, the needs of poverty around the world and how do we engage faithfully and knowledgeably so that we don't end up hurting the poor in the process, right? We know we have to be educated in this because we can end up doing them more harm than good sometimes, Right? So Jesus calls us to do this work, and we are to engage faithfully in this throughout our lives. The gospel's good news to the poor. That's the first thing. But secondly, Jesus says he's been anointed with the Holy Spirit to proclaim good news to the captives. So a big part of the year of Jubilee was that all the slaves had to be set free. Now, often people in that time would be forced into slavery because of some tragic event. 
They, they'd lose all their possessions, have to sell off their land. And when that was gone, the only thing left to do to survive was to say, all right, I'll work for you for free. Some sort of indentured servanthood or even slavery. And so Jesus coming and making this announcement that I'm the eternal jubilee was fantastic news. It was like, there's going to be a fresh start. There's going to be a new beginning. There's going to be a giant reset. But on top of that, we also know that it's very likely people, lots of Jesus' listeners would have heard his statement here, setting the captives free, as this messianic promise that he was going to be this warrior messiah that they had hoped for. Right? He was going to be like King David, coming back and fighting battles and conquering their enemies and liberating them from oppression, specifically to the Romans. Right? They were under Roman rule and under Roman oppression. And so that's what they had hoped for in Jesus. And we see that throughout the Gospels. Jesus is like, I'm not that kind of a king. I didn't come to liberate you from that temporal, political oppression, but I came as a king to liberate you from your biggest enemies, from Satan, his servants, from sin and death. That's what Jesus came to liberate them from as their king, and Jesus gets right to it in the Gospel of Luke. His first miracle, we see, is cleansing the man possessed by the demons. Right? So we see him aiming at what he's going for right off the bat. But I think we also have to wrestle with this idea like, what does Jesus mean by liberating the captives in this time now? Right? Clearly he didn't liberate the Jews from Roman rule in his time on earth. But what is his hope for us even now? Um, he's quoting Isaiah here, which Isaiah is all about you know, this prophecy to the people of Israel who are in sin. And then they're going to go off to captivity in Babylon. But God's saying, look, I'm going to take you up out of captivity. Just like the Exodus story, right? So much of the Bible, the big narrative of the Bible is God taking his people out of the land of slavery and into the promised land. That's what he wants for his people, not just spiritually, but physically as well. As we look back at our nation's history, you know, the slave trade is one of the most grievous sins that we have committed. It was horrific. Unfortunately, slavery has changed, but it's not ended in this country. And the sex industry is full of slavery. Of course, around the world, there's lots of different kinds of slavery still going on today. But even in our nation today, women and even girls are sold for their bodies into slavery. And so I, th I don't think this is just kind of a spiritual thing Jesus is saying, but I think he's saying Christians ought to be the ones fighting to set the captives free. Christians ought to be the one caring about this. People don't own people. God owns people. And so Christians have always cared about this. People like Wilberforce um, back during the slave trade, but also now today, Christians standing up all over the world saying, no, people do not own other people. God owns people. And of course, slavery can be something that's done to us, but it can also be self-inflicted. Right? How many of us have been in some sort of a bondage that we kind of chose for ourselves. I mean, we didn't start out that way, but we got into it ourselves. Some sort of a substance addiction, a sex addiction, shopping, you know, impulsive spending, video games, or even gambling. We get into these things. They start out small, but they increase over time. And before long, they're just dominating and ruling us. They're, they're vicious oppressors in our lives. We become slaves to them. And thankfully, Jesus came to set us free from those, those self-inflicted um, slave relationships as well. There's lots of wonderful ministries that address these kinds of things. I took a class in seminary on substance abuse and addiction, and one of the guys that came to our class was um, a big proponent of AA. 
And he was a great Christian guy, too. And he said, look, you know, the, the second step of the 12-step program in AA says this. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And he said, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I am that power that can liberate you, that can set the captives free. And that's the good news now that we carry to those in captivity all around the world, whether that be captivity that's placed on them or self-inflicted. That's the second thing Jesus was anointed to do. But the third thing is, he says, I've, I've brought about recovering of sight to the blind. You know, this is something that Jesus adds to the idea of Jubilee, the recovering of sight to the blind. And again, we have to hear him speaking both physically and spiritually. Jesus obviously had a wonderful physical healing ministry, opened the eyes of many blind people, many who are deaf, raised dead people, healed all kinds of sick people. And here at Life Church, those are not just nice footnotes in the Gospels. We actually believe that that's available to us today. We have people up here to pray for you after church. We hope that you will come with your physical ailments because we believe that God healed and he still heals today. We know that he's going to heal forever and ever in the resurrection in the new kingdom to come, but it's kind of like this giant reservoir with this big dam, right? And when Jesus came and brought his kingdom, water started bursting through the dam in different places. Eventually, the whole dam is going to be released and all of us will be healed. But we're just praying, God, let more water keep coming. Let more healing keep flooding over us. We don't know why God doesn't heal every single time. We know that our God is a healer, and so we keep praying for him to heal, physically to do those healings. So please, if you are sick or you have an infirmity, something that you're needing healing from, Jesus is the one that opens the blind eyes. He gives recovery of sight to the blind. He can do that. But also, we know Jesus is speaking spiritually here. He talks about this so much during the, in, in all four Gospels. The, the blindness, the spiritual blindness that is over, especially the Jews, but all people. And this was our scenario as well, Well, right? I mean, think of the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. He has his, he's knocked off his donkey. He has his eyes blinded. And then he's, his eyes are opened by Ananias to see. He can see Jesus for who he is. And that's what we're praying during this time of Epiphany. We're asking, Lord, open our eyes. Let us see. And let, the, let that happen many, many, many times here in our services. Let people who come in not knowing Jesus, let their eyes be open to see him for the rescuer that he is. Let that happen in your workplaces. We're praying, God, let that happen in our families. Some of our family members don't know Jesus. Their eyes are blinded to him. Um, some of our, our coworkers don't know Jesus. Let their eyes be open to them. Some of our classmates at school don't know Jesus. Praying, God, open blind eyes, because that's the biggest miracle of all, right? That the Holy Spirit would open someone's eyes who are blind to see Jesus for who he really is. Jesus opens the blind eyes, and then fourth, and finally, Jesus says he's anointed by the Spirit to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And the Greek word here for oppressed is literally those who have had their hearts broken in pieces. Those who have had their hearts broken in pieces. That's what Jesus, that's who Jesus came for. And obviously, one of the biggest ways back then, as I already mentioned, one of the biggest ways people would come into poverty or even slavery was through tragedy. I mean, we read about it in, in um, places like Ruth. We studied Ruth and Naomi. They had lost their sons, their husband, and they were poverty-stricken. That was their source of income. They were destitute and poor. But God didn't forget about them. 
God didn't forget about the poor. He made laws. He put laws in place, said, like the gleaning laws. They had places where they could go to get food, where they could survive. But he also put in there every 50 years, if poverty has, has struck you because of tragedy, I'm going to hit the reset button. I'm going to give you a fresh start. I'm going to give you your land back. You're going to come out of slavery. You're going to come out of debt. That's the heart of our God. Jesus shows up and he says, I'm that. I'm the year of Jubilee. I'm setting the captives free. I'm canceling the debts. I'm, I've come to be with you in your oppression and lead you out of it. And we see Jesus doing this in his ministry too. Think of the woman with the issue of blood. She touches Jesus' robe and he heals her instantly. Brings her out of years of oppression. Think of Jesus raising the widow's son. Her heart shattered in a million pieces. All of a sudden, he's brought back to life. I think of Jesus touching and healing the lepers. They hadn't been touched by anybody, let alone been close to anybody. Jesus doesn't just say you're healed. He reaches out and touches them, heals them, restores them, those people who are oppressed. Today, the call for the church is to do the same to follow in Jesus' footsteps in the power of the Spirit, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, his jubilee, to lift up those who have been impacted by disaster. And I don't know a time in the world where you had so much disaster in front of you. I mean, literally this year, there's over 40 million people worldwide at risk of dying from famine. We're going to learn about some of this stuff in the impact class here in, in a few minutes. But literally, millions and millions of people in our nation but around the world who have lost a loved one in this pandemic. Their hearts broken into a million pieces. We can help ease their pain. We can help ease their suffering. There are millions of people under oppressive governments right now. We can help to be a voice for them. But even on more of a local level, you know, how are we thinking through this as business owners and as employees to make sure our business places are places that don't take advantage of people but lift up the oppressed? That's what God's always telling people. He's like, it ain't wrong to have some of the world's goods, but make sure you look out for those people who are oppressed. And one of the things we always see is that the rich get richer oftentimes because they're taking advantage of the oppressed. They're down and out. And then they say, yeah, and we're going to make you do these things so that we get more and you get less. God says, no, don't do that. Help them. Lift them up out of it. How are we there for those people as a listening ear who have had their hearts broken? Shattered into a million pieces. Jesus would call us into that space. That's what Jesus says, and then he comes to his sermon time. So he quotes Isaiah, and I love what he does. He just sits down for his sermon. I imagine people gathered around, kind of like this. All eyes are on him. And he says, today. I love how Raymond paused at that big word, today. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, not several years from now, not in a little while, today. Jesus says, today the poor have good news preached to them because I've become poor that they might become rich. Today, the slaves can be liberated because I'm going to take their chains. He says, today the blind eyes can be opened because by his wounds we're all healed. Jesus says, today those with broken hearts those who are oppressed, they can be healed because I was broken to bits for them. Jesus says, today, you don't have to wait to be set free. You can be free today. Jack preached about this last week too. The Christian does not need to live in bondage. Jesus is our jubilee. He came to set the captives free. You can be free today. 
I love how Michael Card puts it in his song. He says, debts forgiven, slaves set free, Jesus is our jubilee. Let's receive him as that today and let's take him to the world. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. You're such a good God that you would even put into your plan for your people something like a jubilee year. Just such a window into your heart that you do not want your people in bondage. You want liberty for us. You want us free. You didn't stop there. You sent your son into the world to become a man, to live, die, and rise again from the dead, announcing the year of the Lord's favor. And so we just give you praise and glory for that, and we ask that you would help us to receive you as that today, Jesus. Help us to take you to the world. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.